You're listening to The Right to Be Catholic with Sean A.R. Brought to you by the Eastern Catholic Re-Evangelization Center. Welcome, everybody, to the Right to Be Catholic podcast, where we tackle everyday issues that we as Catholics face in our modern world today. I'm your host and Catholic speaker, Sean A.R. Now, if you tuned in last month, you heard me talking with Father Kevin Yono on the topic of what we as Catholics believe. And this is our part two to that part. So I recommend that you listen to part one from last month to get the full spectrum of what we're going to be talking about. And again, just to touch back on what we did talk about, we, we dedicated all of last month's episode to our Mother Mary, uh, the grace and beauty and why we as Catholics not worship, but we pray to our Mother Mary and why she's so important, why Jesus picked her specifically to be his mother and to be the queen of heaven. Now, this episode, again, um, we're going to be focusing on what we as Catholics believe. We're going to focus on our saints and we're going to focus on the Eucharist. So I want to welcome back again and thank you for joining us, Father Kevin Yono. Thank you, Father. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Um to talk about some of these topics with you today. Yeah, so am I. I mean, these are very important topics that we as Catholics, uh, you know, talk about all the time. Uh, you know, people always ask us as Catholics, do you really eat the body of Christ? Yes, we do. Is it a symbol or is it actually his body? And hopefully we'll talk about that when mm -hmm. we talk about the Eucharist. But one thing um, uh, as Catholics, people say like, why do you have so many statues? Like when my friends come over, they're not Catholic. They're like, your mm -hmm. house looks like a museum. I'm like, no, it's not a museum. These are just Catholic images that we as Catholics, and a lot of them are saints. For example, one of my favorite saints is the Archangel Michael, St. Michael, right? Mm -hmm. um, I actually named my son, well, his middle name is Michael because I loved St. Michael so much. And one of my favorite ones that we were actually just talking about a minute ago is our former Pope, Pope John Paul II. My son's actual name is John Paul Michael, right? Yeah. So two saints that I love, I gave my son... Both, uh, both of their names. So what I want to dive into now with you, Father, is, um, you know, people always ask, why do you guys pray to statues? Or why do you guys even pray to these saints when you could just pray directly to Jesus or God, right? So mm -hmm. what, I want your thoughts on that. Okay, so first, it's important that, you know, when people say a good way to look at it is, first, you have to look at that we've been changed by our baptism, and what even happened to us the moment we were baptized, right? So we have to look at what is Jesus's ultimate plan for us, right? So when he died on the cross and when we were baptized, we received those saving graces. We as Christians are changed. We're changed into saints. We're placed in a state of grace. Original sin is wiped away from our baptism. And we are completely renewed and transformed, okay? We become part of the body of Christ. We are one with his mystical body. Okay. So whenever I pray, God, the father, when he looks at me, he sees his son in me. He sees Jesus. So when I speak and when you speak, it's like Jesus is praying in you because of what he's done for you. Okay. And also another thing to look at before we talk about this more deeply is even um, in the letter, I believe it's um, first, the second Peter one, um, three through four, St. Peter says, we're going to become partakers of the divine nature. So when that, what that basically means that like when we're in heaven, God's ultimate plan for us is to actually participate 
in his very divine self, his divine nature, his divine being. Okay. So what that is doing to us is completely transforming us. We're not God, but we become like God. Okay. That's how much we've been transformed as Christians. We have been the grace we've received. The transformation we've received is something far beyond anything from the past, from anyone in the past. So looking at that, why do we not go directly, just directly to God? And why do we go to saints? Well, first, God is himself is a communion of persons. We believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Right, right. When he created us male and female, he made us a communion of persons where we love each other, we we talk to each other, we we help each other, right? It's not just me and God, it's us and God. We are part of the body of Christ. So when when I sin, it affects you. When I do good, it affects you. We're all part of the body of Christ and we're all in it together. And we are literally, when I sin, it hurts the other members of the body. So we're all together as one body. So St. Paul, you know, he will consistently in the scriptures ask for prayers. He will ask other Christians to pray for him, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. He said it actually in the scriptures. He said, I'm going to pray for you and you pray for me. Yeah, he does it consistently throughout his letters in more than one place, many places. But the point is, and all Christians usually believe in that, that they can pray for each other. But the point that I have to ask a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters is, well, if you believe you can go to God by yourself, and even the great St. Paul, who knows he can raise people from the dead in the name of Jesus, he has all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's one of the greatest apostles, right? And so why does he ask for prayers? Does he need your prayers? Is God blind? Does God not see when he speaks? Does God not hear and see his plight when he's suffering? Does he need other people? Well, he does need other Christians to pray for him. He even knows he does. And so the point is, it's not that God doesn't see, but it's an act of love. It's an act of charity when you pray for others. And so when we live in that fellowship of love, you know, we are growing in grace, So it's part of God's plan that we grow in holiness in grace. So he has a role for for every person. And so God doesn't just eliminate our role in salvation in doing good. So that's one explanation of why we intercede for each other. But then the other problem is people think that when we are, when we die, right, that we we don't know what's going on. We've lost connection with earth. And we don't know what's happening here. And so, and then people will say to us, you know, why are you praying to the dead? You know, they can't hear you. And so, and so what I would have to say, there is some biblical evidence of why that's not exactly accurate. Well, it's in Revelations. I mean, I I read it before myself in Revelations in, in John's vision, it talks about saints being at the throne of God and the incense, their prayers rising like incense Mm -hmm. to God. And I even read it in um, Psalm 103, where it says, bless, O Lord, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, hearkening the voice of his word, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers that do his will. Yeah. So there's lots of examples of, of angels and saints doing God's will, um, especially in revelation. Like you mentioned in revelation, I believe it's revelation five, eight. I have it right here. It says the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with, with them, a gold of bowl 
a golden bowl full of f- filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Yep. So yeah. consistently showing in other places too, as well, like they're offering our prayers to God. Like, how can they do that if they don't know what's happening? How are they? Obviously, it's by God's power that they're able to do this. But remember, like I said, they're partakers when they're in heaven. They're partakers of the divine nature. They're they're sharing in God's divine life. He's obviously not, this is not taking away glory from God, but he has no. a role, he has a role for them to play, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if they're in heaven and they're mm-hmm. at the throne of God, God has made them perfect in that way where they can partake in that. And and people will say, like, okay, so I speak English. And if the saint is from you know Spain or Italy or whatever, how is he hearing or is she hearing what I'm saying? Well, obviously they're omnipotent if if they're with God that they understand these things and can hear and communicate mm-hmm. that way where you know, if God made them perfect and they're with him, they're next to him. The mm-hmm. same thing what we were saying last month, Father, when you and I were mm-hmm. talking, like, why do we pray to our mother Mary? Well, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, God loves her. She's his mother. So he'll mm-hmm. he'll heed her word. Just, just how he did many mm-hmm. times in the gospels, right? So these saints, God loves them. And they're next. And they're a lot closer than you and I are right now to him. So when we pray to these saints, I truly believe mm-hmm. if, if you're sitting or talking to God in heaven, you know, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, you know, Sean said he wants this or needs this. You know, you might want, you might want to help him out. Okay, great. I love you so much. I'll do it in him, for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's very true. So the one who is in heaven is a lot more righteous than us because they view God. They're in his presence, right? Right. And so... Even Jesus himself says, you know, the least one of these who's in heaven is greater than St. John the Baptist on earth. And he said St. John the Baptist on earth was the most righteous man that righteous ever lived. Man. Yep. And, and so he's saying that the least one in heaven is greater than him. Why? Because they are participating in God's very divine self. So God gives them that closeness when they're in heaven. But another thing is God, Jesus even said... um, that he's not God of the dead, but he's also God. He, but he's God, not of the dead, but God of the living. So those who are in heaven are more alive when they, when they enter into internal life than they are when they were on earth. He says they're only sleeping. When someone dies in Christ, he says they're asleep. So um, it's very clear that they have another a clear passage that they can actually hear what we, what we, um, <clears throat> What we are saying is in Hebrews, um, in the book, on the letter to the Hebrews, it says, it gives a list in chapter 11 of the prophets, David, Samuel, Moses, and then how they were these, these witnesses of faith. And then it begins to start in chapter 12. Originally, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter distinctions. But right after he gives a list of all these holy prophets, he says, there in, in chapter Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. So these witnesses don't take away from Jesus, but they obviously are guides to for us to lead us to our leader who is Christ, but showing us that there are witnesses that are not just angels, but they are 
the prophets. They are saints in heaven. So I think there's enough clear, like scriptural evidence showing that, you know, that the saints that we, are. Yeah, that heaven. we can go to saints. Well, I mean, so I just want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, but, and I also want to reference this, how you said about saints. So uh, when Jesus took up the three apostles to the Mount, uh, mountain to pray during the mm-hmm. transfiguration, right? Um, mm-hmm. Who, who is he speaking to? He was speaking to two saints. He was speaking to Moses and Elijah, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so even Christ himself was getting guidance and counsel from the saints, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that right there. Well, we wouldn't say, yeah. I mean, I know what you're saying, not necessarily guidance and counsel, but they were witnessing to him. Right. So, but I mean, yeah. if, if, even if Christ alone would go to them and talk to them. What makes me better than Christ himself that I would not go to them and talk to them and pray to them. Right. Yeah. And when, we, and we have to be careful. So just to make a distinction, when we say we pray to them, we're asking for them to pray for us. Correct. So I'm, I'm sorry. They, I apologize. You pray, pray. Yeah. Pray with them. How about that? when we ask them? Yeah. When we ask them to intercede, to pray for us. Yes. Right. And, and again, I want, I want to make that distinction <laughs> like how you said we as Catholics mm-hmm. do not worship saints. We do not worship mm-hmm. our mother Mary. We yeah. love and honor them, but we only yeah. worship ours. But you know, and I, I, I was saying earlier, I wanted to go back to how you said mm-hmm. we are a communion of people and my sin mm-hmm affects you. So it just goes back to the fact that I'm sure you've probably heard this before. And I want to get your thoughts on pe- when people say, you know, why is it my business to get involved? Like, you know, like, you know, let them do them and I'll do me. And it's mm-hmm. not my, really my problem, but, but I always tell them as a Catholic, it sort of is mm-hmm. your duty, right? God yeah. said, Jesus said, I call you all to a Royal priesthood. And when he says mm-hmm. that, he's not just talking to the apostles, he's talking to all of us. We're all mm-hmm. part of that royal priesthood where if we see someone sinning, it is our obligation, right, to do what's right. Because God's going to tell mm-hmm. you on the last day, he's going to judge you and say, because I'm not going to judge you, but he will judge you and tell you mm-hmm. when I needed you, where were you? You're gonna be like, but I, it was none of my business, right? Yeah, no, we're definitely called to get each other to heaven, right? Um, that's the whole point of of being, that's one of the main things we do as disciples of Christ, right? We lead people to live a holy life. That's what St. Paul is doing. That's what the saints are doing in the church. They are guiding each other. And I believe there are scripture passages that say it's serious when you see your brother sinning and you don't, um, you don't correct him. It kind of, it becomes the sinful for us if we don't, right? When, when it's appropriate, right? Correct. There are times in conversations when it's not necessarily the appropriate time to correct someone, um, in certain situations, but we are called to um, guide each other to right living, to righteous living, and not in a judgmental way, not in a way of condemning or lifting ourselves up like we're as if we're, we are not sinners, but in a humble way, acknowledging like you want what's best for this person. And that person has a choice whether they want to live that way or not. But if they don't know something is sinful and they need help to understand it, of course, we're called to help them to understand what's right, especially if they want to say that they're Catholic and, you know, they want to follow Christ in their life. It's important that we do that. You know, everyone has the right to choose how they want to live, but we, you know, as Christians, we help the body of Christ to live righteously. I can't tell, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with fellow uh, Christians, Mm -hmm. Catholics, whatever it may be, but where they say, you know, it was that one person who told me this or showed me this. And that was the conversion started that you know, that triggered something in them that started their conversion and now they're 
like they're they're really righteous and pie. I'm not saying they're per- no one's perfect, but mm-hmm. it took that one person to get them to that next level. And if that one person wasn't there to do that, and that one person yep. said, it's not my business, then that mm-hmm. person probably would be lost. And I'm not saying 100% yeah, of course, all the time. Happens right. all the time. I mean, one of my favorite definitions of a saint, a saint is a sinner who keeps trying. Mm-hmm. I've heard that many times and I like that. So um, we were talking about saints uh, and I wanted to bring up, so you, you go to any Catholic church, you go to any Chaldean home, um, you know, that are Catholic, obviously, and their houses are full of statues of saints. Mm-hmm. Very good. And I, and, and I always tell people, we don't, we don't, use these statues to like worship or anything like that, but they're like symbols to us to, to, to remind mm-hmm. us of this saint, right? Like I, I have an awesome statue right now. I'm mm-hmm. right now. It's St. Michael and he's actually kneeling, you know, mm-hmm. and he has a shield and on the shield, it has an inscription, uh, a Bible verse on it. Uh, yeah. And it, it reminds me myself, like the way he's kneeling to me, when I pray with him, mm-hmm. I kneel myself because I'm going to kneel when I yeah. pray to my Lord, right? They're, they're reminders of it. What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, so I can explain that a little bit. So, you know, in the commandments, when it says not to make a graven image, it's meaning images that are going to be worshipped as a God, right? Like the golden and, calf. Like the golden calf. So images that will be worshipped. The thing is, statues and the objects that we have, they can be used in prayer, but never to be worshipped. Right. They're used as like pictures of family members who, you know, when we when you take a picture and you have a picture on your desk of your parents and your cousins and your loved ones and you use that to maybe remember them. Or even maybe if you have someone, a picture of someone who passed away to talk to them, to ask them to pray for you in heaven, to have a relationship with them still, not necessarily trying to communicate with the dead, like as if a seance, that's not. No, okay. no. Yeah, of course. But to speak to them in a way that through asking them for their prayers and remembering them. And so statues are used in the Old Testament in liturgical prayer. We know this. Um, the Ark of the Covenant had the two cherubim, right? Protecting yeah, the, the two, Ark of the Covenant. Yep. The two angels that um, God asked Moses to build to put on the Ark. Um, and they carried that ark everywhere. It was the holiest object that they had. So we talked about that last time, I believe. Yep. And so there was two statues on there. So is God contradicting himself when he says, don't make statues and then tells him to make a statue. You know, that doesn't really make any sense. And not only that's not the only statue he told them to make, but there were graven images made throughout the temple on, I believe, the uh, veil, the temple veil and other places where they had literally images of. I believe animals of um, also images of, of angels inside the temple. And also they would, um, so they would not worship these, but these were used in their, in their, in their temples, we could say. So the idea that God is saying completely don't make statues, don't make images. He's not saying don't make them. He's saying, don't make ones that you're going to worship as false gods. Correct. So he's not I mean, destroying artwork. You know, you have, pre- look at the president. We have statues of the presidents, right? In Washington, D.C. No one's ever going to say that, oh, if the statue of Abraham Lincoln is an idol, most people wouldn't say that. I most mean, people, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, most people who built those were Protestants, right? Um, the point is, even if we bow before a statue, it's the type of bowing. There's different type of bowing. There's bowing 
in honor, not necessarily in honor of even the statue at all, but in honor of the saint of the saint. And when we're trying to worship God, right, we're not, if anyone worships a statue, even accidentally in any way, that's actually sinful. You know, the church tells us if you worship a statue, it's sinful. If you worship Mother Mary, it's a sin. sin. Yeah. You're sinning if you worship her. So if anyone's confused about that, I'm sh- I mean, is that possible? Sure, people can be confused about that, but they shouldn't be because the church explicitly has always taught throughout church history, you don't worship Mother Mary. It's like ridiculous. Like, how could anyone even think? There's I mean, only one God, right? I can understand. Yeah, I can understand someone from looking from the outside. If they're looking at me praying before a statue, I can see if they're completely ignorant on what we teach. I can see like, okay, why they think we worship a statue. They can think that because I'm praying before a statue, but I'm not worshiping the statue. I'm remembering Mother Mary to help. It's helping me to speak to her, to ask her for her prayers, never worship. And it's, there's a distinction because even St. Augustine makes a distinction very early on in the church. And he says, the word latria is worship given to God alone. Mm-hmm. And and Dulia, giving honor and glory to God or his creatures, giving honor and glory. So it's not the kind of glory that's adoration. Adoration and worship in the sense of giving adoration to God, that belongs to God alone. So Amen. it's not it's not the same as honor, like honoring one of his saints, like the early church. That's what they did. They honored the saints. They built churches on their tombs when, especially when someone was martyred um, in the ancient church, all the early Christians would build churches on those sites and name them after that martyr, like the church of St. Stephen. And those, the bones of the martyrs were thought to be so holy that when they would go and they would pray before them, they would receive healing. Right. Wow. And, And so that's how you begin to see why the intercession of the saints begins to develop. Because one example would be even from the scriptures. For example, when St. Paul, when a handkerchief or a napkin touches St. Paul, mm-hmm. they literally have a napkin in, um, I have to look up in Acts. I forget the chapter in Acts um, that it's in. I can look it up for you. But um, where literally it's like a napkin, literally touch St. Paul and it's going around and people are touching it to people for healing and people are getting healed by it, Right. So this is an example of like a second class relic that we have relics in the Catholic church, right? Where something that touched someone who was really holy, who was living Christ, living like Christ, received the gifts of the Holy Spirit and is, is taking this thing that touched them and touching it to other people and they're receiving healing. People today would think that something pagan, crazy, how could you be using an object for healing? But that's what they did in, in, in the scriptures, in the new Testament. And even the shadow of, of, I believe it was, um, was it St. Peter? It was was St. Paul. His shadow would touch people and they would be healed from his shadow. It's amazing. And even in the old Testament, we have an example, I believe it's in second Kings where a body of a dead man fell on the body of, of Elisha and his, and, um, Elisha's tomb and he came back to life just by falling onto his tomb. Okay. And this is even before, before Christ even came. And so in the early church, we have documented that be, um, and by many church fathers in the early centuries, whenever a Christian who was sick would come and pray by the bones of a saint, 
they would get healed and they would document it. St. Augustine would document hundreds and hundreds of miracles happening at the tombs of saints. And they would get healed from all kinds of things, diseases, everything. And he would document it. And so, so that's how the intercession of the saints developed more and more was seeing that their bones are healing us. How could their bones heal us? It's as if they were interceding through their bodies for us. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. And so that's, that's early on. First, second, third centuries, we can see in church history, they were doing this. So it wasn't like something in the Middle Ages they were doing in Rome. All of a sudden they have intercession. Right. Out of no, nowhere, it just came. Came out of nowhere. And so, so, I mean, you know, these, these are all great things that we talk about with our saints, but mm-hmm. there is something or um, someone that's way more important than all of them. And that's Jesus Christ. Right. And course. Jesus and Jesus Christ mm-hmm. left for us. And we as Catholics believe this. And this is the next topic I want to get into with you. Mm-hmm. He left us something very important. And he instituted this in the first mass during the last supper, when he said to his apostles, this mm-hmm. is my body. This is my blood. You know, when you yeah. do this, do this in remembrance of me. And a lot of people misunderstand because, you know, we've been getting misquoted lately. So a lot mm-hmm. of people, um, misunderstand his words when he said this, but I, you know, I know in Catholic teachings and I know you're going to, you're going to tell us this right now, how it was very clear. And it is very clear multiple times in scripture and in in Catholic tradition that he meant it. And it is actually his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So we were talking about this earlier when when you and I were talking about, and of course we're talking about the Eucharist, right? When he instituted that and during the last supper. Yeah, of course. Now, I want, to, I want to make it very clear just to a lot of our listeners that, um, you know, a lot of times people will tell me like, hey, why don't we in the Eastern Rite Church drink the blood during Mass? Why do we only take the body? And, um, and of course, you're going to explain this too, but I was told always, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, that the, if you take one, you're taking the other one. When you, take the, when you drink the blood, you're also taking the body. When, you, when you're taking the body of Christ, you're also drinking the blood. They're one and the same. So if you receive one, you're receiving both, correct? So, yeah. So the body cannot be separated from the blood. So the, it, when you receive the Eucharist, you're receiving the whole body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. One example of this is, for example, when you see a Eucharistic miracle and the Eucharist, let's say there's a miracle, Eucharistic miracle, usually that's shown by it bleeding. You can see blood coming out of the Eucharist, literally when there's a Eucharistic miracle, but that's not just the only example, but it's, it's the church teaches that it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And one way I like to also explain to that, I don't believe in the Latin church that they always received consistently the precious blood at every mass. That's something new that happened, I believe, after Vatican II. It's not something that even some people even disagree with it being received every It's not necessarily to be received every single Sunday. It's nice to receive it if you can receive the blood too, but it's not, it's the the, the land right church does it as well, that there are times when they distribute without the precious blood. So in the Chaldean church, we can, I mean, if Bishop Francis wanted to, if for a lot of it is just because of not because of the number of people we have in our churches and um, the difficulty of giving um, the precious blood, and because sometimes it's spilled so often in the Latin Rite, the Latin Rite has a lot of spilling that happens. So it's mostly to protect 
the, the precious blood to protect Jesus because there's already so much abuse that's already like happening when we already give the Eucharist, people dropping it, people breaking it into pieces um, or people putting it in their purse. The precious blood is even more fragile. You see kids just grabbing it and it's spilling. I've heard of all kinds of stuff that's spilling everywhere. And that rarely happens more often with the precious blood I've heard in the Latin right than it does ever with the Eucharist. So, but we do receive it in the Chaldean church too, in some of our churches, I believe um, by dipping the Eucharist in the precious blood. Some of our churches, I believe in, um, in El Cajon in California, they do do that. I believe I'm not sure if Chicago still does it, but they do, do they can receive by intinction. So we can still right. do it. We can do it the other way. We, we can receive that way, but it's important to know that you are receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But it's nice because it's to experience it that way sometimes to receive it that way. But it's not, you are receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity when you receive the Eucharist, obviously, you know. And we as Catholics, I want you to explain this, Father, to the listeners, does we as Catholics believe, and that's what makes us different than other Christian denominations. I mean, not the only thing, but one mm -hmm. of the main things uh, is the sacraments and our most important sacrament being the Eucharist, right? We believe as Catholics that it's not a symbol. It's not like it. It mm -hmm. is actually the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And, and what's beautiful is you, Father Kevin, have the power to transform, I don't know if I'm using the right, right word correctly, but transform this mm -hmm. unleavened bread into the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity. Please explain that to our listeners. Okay, yeah, I mean, so the technical word is transubstantiation. If I there you go, that's the word I was looking for. Hopefully yeah. I said it correctly. But um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a symbol. I mean, if you look at, we're going to go, we're going to go into that a little bit through scripture, but it's definitely not a symbol. It's taught, it's, for 2,000 years, until the Protestant Reformation, um, basically everyone's always believed in the Eucharist. Whether you are, whether you are the Church of the East, which is the Chaldean Church, is part of the Church of the East. Whether you're right. even even the Orthodox that split from the from the Catholic Church, all of the Eastern churches, all of the ancient churches, the center of life of Christian life was devoted to the Eucharist, and all of these churches believe have always believed that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. That's from, from ancient first, second, third, fourth century, fifth century. There has never been a time where these churches have not believed in the Eucharist. And that's kind of how you know that you're a part of the true church is by knowing that the Eucharist is actually the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um, that's a clear way of knowing that you've kind of broken off especially when the early church fathers, the first, very first bishops, like St. Ignatius of Antioch, saying, if you don't believe that this is the flesh of God, he is completely like, he, he goes off the rails. Because at that time, it would be considered a serious heresy if you didn't believe in the Eucharist as being the, the, the flesh of Christ. So you can just read the church fathers. Just look them up. Just type in Google um, church fathers quotes on the Eucharist. And you will see even St. Ephraim calls it the medicine of life. Um, there's all kinds of just just go on and on. All of them, all the bishops have writings on, on the Eucharist and just making it so clear that it is not a symbol. And um, I can go into that a little bit through scripture. Yeah, please do so. Okay, so for us, beginning with John 6, um, we have... Um, 
the multiplication of the loaves. And there's different examples when Jesus takes bread and fish and he multiplies it for his disciples. Okay. okay. This is the beginning of showing that Jesus is capable of multiplying his body for the whole world. It's an un, un, an endless source of grace. It's an endless source of his body is showing that he can multiply the way he multiplied the bread and the fish. He is showing that he can multiply himself for the whole world. And then he goes on um, when he's speaking to his disciples. And when he speaks to the, to the Jews, he says to them, oh, I'm just going to read some of the passage. He says, every, um, verse, starting verse 37, everything that the father gives me will that the father gives me will come to me and I will not reject anyone who comes to me because I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of those who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me that I should not lose anything of what he gave me, but I should also raise it on the last day for this is the will of my father. And then I'm just going to keep going on. Hold on one second. The Jews murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know the f- that his father and mother then ha- his father and mother, then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draw him and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets. They shall be all taught by God. Everyone who listens to my father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the father, except the one who is from God, has seen the father. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him, raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I have life because of the father. So also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said will, while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Anyways, I know uh, I read a lot. There. I mean, well, that, I mean, listen, what you just read right now, that's obviously from what, 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 what verse, what chapter was that from? Where was that from? So this, this is from chapter, this is from uh, John chapter six, the gospel of John chapter six. And this is verses. You can start probably more from 41 all the way down to the end of the chapter. So that was clear that Jesus, he said, I am the bread of life. And if you eat my bread or if you eat, you know, my flesh and drink my blood, I will live in you and you will live in me. And you were saying this before, we're a communion of people, right? Yeah, 
Exactly. Um, so, yeah, he makes it clear. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he says, you do not have life within you. So if it's a symbol, why is he saying that you do not have life within you? And then he also says, just as living, um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And basically he says, so though one who feeds on me will have life because of me. So it's basically saying the, gra- the sacraments, they give the grace that they signify. That's what we teach in the Catholic Church. That the Eucharist is giving Jesus's divine life to you as a gift. Wow. It's a complete gift, unearned, undeserved, unmerited. When you come to receive the Eucharist at Mass, it is a complete unearned gift. And I'm stressing that because a lot of times people think we're just earning everything. It is a complete gift from Jesus when we receive grace from the sacraments, baptism, confession, the Eucharist. And so gifts from God. Yeah. Grace is our gift, our our God's love, how he shows his love for us. They're gifts to us. Yes. mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry. So so you were saying this and I I, want to stress this to all of our listeners. And Mm -hmm. I listen, I'm I'm not perfect. I, I, I failed to do this too. You know, I want everyone who's listening to know the gravity of this. So when we go to, and the only way to receive the body, blood, soul, and the video of, of our Lord Jesus Christ is to go to mass, right? So, Correct. and I, I listen, again, I'm guilty of this myself. I sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm too lazy or whatever this, that, but mm-hmm. what we're missing out on is that. And mm-hmm. how beautiful is that? You know, I, I read this one time and it actually came from, um, a gentleman of the um, Muslim faith, he said to a Catholic, I don't think you believe that that is the body of, of God. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, because if me, a Muslim, believe that that specific piece of bread is Allah, I would fall in front of it and worship it for the rest of my life. And why aren't you doing that? And it made me think, I'm like, wow, as Catholics, we really don't give, I mean, I, not that I, maybe some do, but I'm saying I don't see it myself where people give that much honor and praise to the Eucharist because it is the actual body, blood, not mm-hmm. like I said, it's not a symbol. We as yeah. Catholics believe when the priest prays over it, right? Because mm-hmm. he's because the priest is given those graces by God, right? Yeah. And, and that's just another beautiful thing that, I, you know, we don't have time to talk about, but yeah. know, like a direct line from Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the apostle, all the way down to you, Father Kevin. And yeah. you're able to pray over this bread and make it the body, blood of Christ. But to me, I, I don't believe as Catholics, we give enough worship, praise, honor, respect, however you want to say it, to this Eucharist. Yeah, we don't. And it doesn't mean that we should be praying 24 hours. Um, before the sacrament but the point is it is the highest form of worship jesus deserves adoration and love especially in the eucharist and so i mean it's something that we all have to pray with that we need to love the lord more in the holy eucharist i mean he's present before us um another so a few things i just wanted to point out um also more some more things about the eucharist um there is some stuff with saint paul that he makes clear in the letter to the corinthians he says that so for I received from the Lord that I also handed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was handed over took bread. And after he had given things broken and said, this is my body that is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also the cup after the supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the word remembrance, it's important to know 
whenever the word remember is in, in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, yeah. it means more than just call to mind and just remember, like thinking about something. It actually means to live it, to be transformed by it and to act on it. It should change your whole life. So whenever God would remember someone in the Old Testament and remember his covenant, it would cause God to act drastically to help, let's say, Noah or, or, or Moses or whoever. Whenever he says, I remember you, it, it's more than just calling to mind. So you have to live it, act on it, base your whole life on it. And it's, it's biblical memory. It's the way God, when he says, I remember you, it's something far beyond just, I'm going to think about it in my mind. So it's to live the Eucharist. And that's why it says in Acts chapter 2, yeah, it should be in Acts 2, but maybe Acts 1. But anyways, Acts 2, where it talks about how after they received baptism, they became devoted to the prayers and to the breaking of the bread. It says it specifically that they became devoted to what they called the prayers which are not written in scripture and the breaking of the bread. So they were devoted to a liturgical life. Every church was devoted to a liturgical prayer and they were devoted to the breaking of the bread, which is the celebration of mass. You know, we call it mass now, which means dismissal, but it's, it's the Holy mysteries. So they were devoted to these actions. It says that. And a lot of churches today, that are not Catholic, unfortunately, they are not devoted in any way, shape, or form to the breaking of the bread. They are not devoted. There's no liturgical life. And so this was handed down to us by the apostles themselves. And you can see that in scripture, even St. Paul himself, um, we can see clearly that he goes around celebrating the breaking of the bread. And he, um, he goes on to the seriousness of receiving it. He says in Corinthians... Um, uh, chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 10 chapters, um, chapter 10 verses, starting in verse um, 15. I'm speaking to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because the loaf of bread is one. We, though many, are one body. We all partake of the one loaf. And then he goes on to say, I do not want you to become by no means that they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and also the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealous anger? Are we stronger than he? And then he goes on to saying, I believe um, that if you drink, if you eat, St. Paul even says, if you drink without discerning the body of Christ, you will drink condemnation. That's the other verse that I read to you earlier in First Corinthians. So basically you're saying as Catholics, mm -hmm. if we're going to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity, we have to be cleansed first, which we do as Catholics through mm -hmm. the sacrament of confession. Correct. Yeah. And not just the sacrament of confession, but even if other sins, if they're not mortal, you know, if you're not committing mortal sins. So venial I mean, sins. Venial sins. You can be talking to Jesus about your sins. You should always be praying 
directly to Jesus about your sin, because grace can even work outside of the sacraments, even though the church wants us, obviously, if we've committed serious sin, to go to a priest to receive absolution. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be talking to Jesus about your sin. But, but anyways, I, but not to get off topic, going back to this other verse um, in chapter 11, um, where it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you among you, that is why many among you are ill and infirm. So why is it that if, if whatever that sin is that he's mentioning, I think the, the sin that he's mentioning is that early Christians, they would share a meal and some of the richer Christians wouldn't share their food with the poor. And so yeah. they would, they would receive the Eucharist in a state that they were being very uncharitable to the people around them. And so St. Paul says, this is why some of you are, are sick and dying because you're receiving in a way that you're, you're being really uncharitable towards your neighbor, living in this evil way, and yet you're approaching the Eucharist and receiving it in this state. And he says, that's why some of you are ill because of this. And so regardless of what, what all that means exactly, if it's a symbol, how can it hurt you, right? A symbol can't make you ill can't make you sick. So it's very clear in this passage that if it's that serious where it's like you can't live in sin and and participate, like you can't drink from the cup of demons and from the cup of the Lord, you can't participate in the breaking of the bread and receive it if and receive it, especially we say as Catholics receiving it. Sure. If you're living in some sort of state of sin, right, perpetually without repentance, so the point is, how could a symbol offend God if I received it in sin? How could a symbol um, cause you to be ill? So just something to think about, to pray with. Look how serious St. Paul is being. A symbol can't make you sick. So so something to pray with um, That's right. um, in the letter to the Corinthians. Um, so another thing like, like I wanted to point out to you is just a little bit about what we read about in John 6. Um, so Jesus doesn't just come out of nowhere and say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So to understand it, we have to literally understand the Old Testament, a few things I want us to understand, okay? So Jesus is portraying, portraying oh, I'm sorry, I can't speak right now, portraying himself as the new Moses, okay? So Moses spoke in the Old Testament that there's going to be a prophet and he's going to become and you're going to have to listen to that prophet. And he's going to be obviously more than a prophet, right? He's going to be the son of God. And so Jesus, by saying he is the bread that fell from heaven and he's going to feed you with his flesh, literally says that, he's trying to show you that there's a new exodus. So I'm going to explain a little bit so that our, our, our listeners don't get you know what that means. So basically... When God called the Israelites out of Egypt, right, through Moses, right. right? We know the story of the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? Most people are familiar with that. Sure. So um, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. Moses is called and chosen by God to lead them out of Israel. And God gives him explicit instructions on how to worship, to worship through sacrifice, 
the worship of sacrifice through animals and offerings and certain through liturgical prayers, offering God through this formal ritual way of worshiping God. And so he, God begins to set up the system of worship, okay? And he calls the people out of this exodus, out of the, out of the land of sin, which is Egypt is known as the land of sin, to the holy land, which is the land of promise made to Abraham. So it's the pilgrimage that they are making to the holy land, okay? So now Jesus is the new Moses that's coming to establish, to lead his people to the new holy land, which is heaven, the kingdom of God. And he does that the same way Moses did by establishing a new covenant with his body and blood and not the Old Testament covenant. So he's establishing a new covenant. And I can explain what that means a little bit later. But, and the way and the food that the, that the Israelites received. So they went into the desert, you know, Moses took the people, they crossed the Red Sea, which is a symbol of baptism, into the desert. And, um, and God says, I will rain down for you bread and flesh for you to eat. He literally says that in Exodus, I will rain down bread and flesh for you to eat. Okay. The flesh was in the form of birds. He would rain down birds, quails, sure. and they would come down and they would eat the birds. And that would represent the flesh. It literally says flesh. And it rained down bread for them from heaven to eat that they didn't earn. They didn't work for literally God was feeding them in the desert for right. 40 years with this miraculous bread that tasted like honey. So wow. it was like a foretaste of something greater to come. Right. Okay. And so just to conclude um, very quickly, um, what I wanted to point out is the things that we are doing is not that Jesus is just simply coming out of nowhere and saying, I'm the bread that fell from heaven. He is the new bread that this new bread is supposed to sustain you for the journey, which gets you to heaven. So as Catholics, we need to understand that the Eucharist is actually doing something very serious here. So giving you grace that actually leads you, the life of God being poured into you, leading you to heaven. And wow. Jesus does that by literally feeding you by his body and blood consistently throughout your life. Because consistently they were being fed by the manna that fell from heaven. And that manna was to, to sustain them to lead them to the Holy land. But that all, all of that is a foreshadowing of the new Exodus that God is going to establish through his son, through the cross, through these different ways. He's trying to give us grace through the baptism, through faith and baptism, through the Eucharist and through the other sacraments, giving you grace consistently leading you to heaven. And so and we can talk about that more fully in the future, but it's yeah. being it's being fulfilled. It's not something that came out of nowhere, and so that's why the, that they were still they weren't even able to accept it at that time. The Jews literally were like, "Who can accept this?" And they went away. And Jesus was willing to lose them. He says, "You know, why are you murmuring against yourselves?" That's what they did in the Old Testament. They would murmur. They would complain to God, and so they're like, "Who can believe this?" And so he tells his disciples, do you want to leave too? He actually tells Peter and the disciples in John 6 at the end of the chapter, he says, do you want to leave? Because if you don't want to believe this, 
You know, Jesus is basically saying to them, I can find new apostles. I can find new disciples to carry this message on if you don't want it. So Jesus was willing to lose all his apostles, all of these disciples, the ones who were actually in the desert were disciples. They were watching Jesus for a while and listening in his miracles and seeing his miracles. He was willing to lose them over this teaching. So that's how serious this teaching is. I'm not saying that Protestants who don't receive the Eucharist can't go to heaven. I mean, we believe grace can work outside of the sacraments if necessary. But this is the ordinary way that Jesus is trying to give you everything. It's like as if Jesus is dying on the cross. He's stretching his hand to you from the cross and saying, now take, eat, eat my body and blood. This is because he essentially is the new tree of life and saying, you must eat of this tree, which is the Eucharist, and it gives life. So there's a lot more other foreshadowing. There's a lot more, about, yeah. <laughs> about the no. lamb, the sac- sacrificing the lamb, and you have to eat the lamb to live. We can talk about that another time, but... I'm, you know, I, you know, I didn't want to cut you off because all what you're saying is so beautiful. And I know that reference, what you were talking with the Passover, with the lamb and everything. Yes. And how you have to eat the lamb or you can't live. Correct. The world destroy you. Mm-hmm. But these are very beautiful topics. And we ask, and so how I want to conclude it is we as Catholics, first off, I want to say thank you, Father Kevin, for coming on not once, but twice to talk about this beautiful topic at, you know, what we as Catholics mm-hmm. uh, believe. And we talked about, Again, just to conclude, we talked about our mother, Mary, we talked about the saints, we talked about something so beautiful, the Eucharist. And we can go on and on and on talking about mm-hmm. this for, for, for episodes. Yeah. But I will say this to our listeners. So we as Catholics believe these things. And if you want to learn more, these are my closing thoughts to you guys. If you want to learn more, right, go, go to mass. Right. Listen to what the priests are saying. Go to Bible studies. Do the research yourself. Pick up the Bible and read it, because whether you believe it or not, the Bible is a Catholic book. Right. It was written for Catholics um, for what we believe from the beginning. And how Father Kevin said, you know, the Eucharist was instituted from the beginning. Uh, The saints from the beginning, our Mother Mary from the beginning. These are all Catholic teachers and beliefs that we believe. And they're so beautiful. And again, I'm going to urge all of our listeners go to mass. Read the Bible, go to Bible studies, do your research yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the only way that you as a Catholic will learn more and more and more. Right. Yeah. Uh, Father, do you want to do one closing thought about what we were just talking about? Yeah, just one closing thing. So I recommend for you a book. Um, it's on audio, it's on Audible as well, if you like audio. But yeah, it's called um Jesus, it's called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Unlocking the Secrets of the Last Supper. It's it's by Brant Petrie. And um, his, his last name spelled P-I-T-R-E. And he's okay. wrote, written a lot of good books, especially one on Mother Mary. Um, but this book is really good on um, explaining the Eucharist, especially through Jewish eyes and, and what Jesus was trying to do by establishing a new covenant in his body and blood and how important that is for our salvation. So it's a really good book. It's amazing. Honestly, I recommend that for anyone listening. Um, you can even listen to it on audible, maybe download it on audible. If you like that, you can listen to it. Nice. In your car. I mean, but it's a, it's a really good book and I recommend anything by him. He's an amazing, um, he's an amazing scholar. Thank you. Thank you. Father Kevin, again, I want to say thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. And thank you for doing what you're doing, you know, shepherding our church. Please continue to do so. You know, we love you. Thank you very much. To our listeners, I thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Right to Be Catholic. Like I always close, 
Remember to go forth with confidence and that you have the right to be Catholic. God bless You have been listening to an ECRC Martoma Productions podcast. To learn more about ECRC and all of our programs, go to ecrc.us.